Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm 37. Turn to Psalm 37. We consider this psalm in connection with our text for this morning from Matthew 5, verse 5, where our Lord says, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 gives us the Old Testament background to these words spoken by our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word, a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. But their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have in the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures; they vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power. Or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. 
and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he is no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Now let's turn also in the New Testament to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter gives expression to the same ethic being set before us in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Read first of all just verse, verse 23 from chapter 2 where Peter says, When he that is Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now we see the implications of that in verses 8 and following of chapter 3, where Paul, Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you shall be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, once again this morning our Lord speaks to us with a word of blessing. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And this beatitude also, at least in the eyes of the world, is is a baffling statement. This beatitude also is a baffling statement because in the eyes of the world, meekness is typically associated with weakness. And weakness is not typically associated with blessing, let alone having domain over the whole earth. But once again, our Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount is 
is turning the thinking of the world over on its head. Once again, our Lord is, is challenging the fundamental assumptions of the world. In this case, the false assumptions, the false premise that if you want to be blessed and you have to take matters into your own hands, he's challenging the worldly assumption that if you want to get ahead, you've got to clutch and claw your way to the top regardless of how many heads you have to step on to get there. He is dismantling the worldly notion of might makes right. He is undermining the notion that, that revenge is a dish best, sold, best served cold. And he is presenting us with a new kingdom ethic. A kingdom ethic of meekness towards God and meekness towards one another. Meekness towards God in submitting to God's will and allowing our lives to be shaped by his word. And meekness also towards one another. Meekness towards our neighbor which calls for the moderation of our passions. Meekness towards one another involves bearing and forgiving injuries and repaying good for evil. None of which things come naturally to any one of us. For meekness, like poverty of spirit, like mourning over sin, is a grace of the Holy Spirit. None of us are meek by nature. By nature, we do not submit to the will of God or to the word of God. By nature, our default setting is always to follow our own interest. By nature, our default setting is, is to look to our own advantage and to lord that advantage over others. By nature, we're always prone to take matters into our own hands, particularly when we've been wronged or when we've been offended. We are by nature seekers of revenge. We like to repay evil for evil, not good for evil. Hence, our pride, our irritability, our venom, the instant we are provoked, says Calvin. Harshness and cruelty abound, and by nature, we are vindictive and cause no end of trouble. It is as if lightning should fall from heaven every time we've been offended. For experience in the world would teach us that victory and success go to the bold and the aggressive, and not to those who are gentle and lowly in heart. But as I said in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that the thinking and the values of the world are turned over on their head. Because what has God said of this Christ who is gentle and lowly in heart? The Greek word in Matthew 11 translated as gentle is the very same word that our Lord uses here for meek. What has our Lord said of this gentle and lowly Christ, this meek Christ? The Bible says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What has God given to this gentle and lowly Christ? Philippians 2 says God has given to this gentle and lowly Christ, this meek Christ. God has given to that Christ the name that is above every other name. So that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ came into the world as the embodiment of Psalm 37, this psalm which speaks of meekness. And so who better to preach a New Testament sermon on meekness than the Lord Jesus himself? Who better to interpret this psalm and to, to, to broaden the impact of this psalm than 
then Christ to himself was the embodiment of this psalm. To be sure, this psalm speaks to all of us that when David was writing it, he had the Christ who was to come in view. David had Christ in view when he said that the meek shall inherit the land. David had Christ who was to come in view when he said the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will be forever. For who is truly blameless except for the Lord Jesus Christ? We, of course, recognize that if left to ourselves, not one of us here is blameless. But when David says at the end of the psalm that there is future for the man of peace, and when he says that salvation, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, David is also resting in the wonder of the gospel that says, in Christ, you're as blameless as Christ is. That's the reality of our union with Christ, isn't it? That when God sees us, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says, our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3. And those whom God has saved in Christ, God has freely given the Spirit of Christ. Those whom God has saved in Christ, God has given the Spirit of Christ who, who works the character of Christ into our hearts. Who does that in such a way that we begin to delight in the things that Christ delights in, so we begin to see things the way Christ sees them. So by way of reminding these Beatitudes, our Lord is, is describing who we are. He's saying this is what what characterizes every Christian, every citizen who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. That person is meek. He's poor in spirit. He's a mourner and now we see that he is meek. When the spirit makes his home in the hearts of God's children, he works meekness into their hearts. And the spirit does that with the promise that they shall inherit the earth. This congregation is what God has promised a little clear this morning. God has promised her an, an inheritance. He's placed the mark of, of blessing upon her forehead, saying, all that belongs to Christ I have imparted to you. And this, of course, is what God has said to each and every one of us here, isn't it? All that Christ has, I impart to you, I, I give to you. And so the question that Peter asks in his second letter might well be asked of us this morning. What sort of people then ought we to be? And the answer, of course, is we're to be a meek people then. What sort of people ought you to be, says Peter, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming of the day of God? Waiting, you see, is one of the primary features of true meekness. That's one of the things that, that Psalm 37 shows us. Here in Psalm 37, the believer finds himself living in a hostile world. The believer finds himself living in this world where the wicked draw their swords, where they bend their bows and, and in an effort to attack the righteous. But what is the believer told to do in this world where the wicked have bent their bows or they've drawn their swords? The believer is told to wait. Wait upon the Lord who himself will give you the land. One of the challenges with this psalm is that the progression of thought is not 
really so easily discerned. It doesn't follow the same arc that other psalms follow. But rather, we have here in Psalm 37 is a series of observations that, that serve to illustrate this central conviction that the Lord looks after the faithful, the Lord looks after the meek. The Lord provides everything they need. The Lord sees how the wicked plot against them. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so to the righteous, he says in verses 1 and 2, fret not. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And then in verse 3, he says, trust in me. Delight yourselves in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, God is saying, find your satisfaction in me. He says in verses 5 and 6, commit your way to me. Trust in me, and I will act on your behalf. Because God himself will vindicate the righteous, the righteous can endure the sufferings of this life with all patience and without resentment. And that's really what genuine meekness is. Meekness is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. God says in verses 7 and 8, be still before me. Wait patiently for me. This is what God says to us when we're frustrated, when we're huffing and puffing in anger. Right when we're about to lash out and retaliate. What does God say? He says, be still. Quiet yourself before me. Wait for me. Refrain from anger and and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, for it only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, verse 9, but those who wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the land. The posture of meekness is the posture of waiting. The posture of meekness is the posture of waiting for the Lord to act rather than the posture of taking matters into our own hands. It's a posture that stems from the fact that those who belong to Christ have looked in the mirror and they've seen their own wickedness. Those who belong to Christ have seen their own poverty of spirit. Those who belong to Christ have come to to mourn over their own sin, over their own wickedness. You've heard me say before, each of these beatitudes go hand in hand as our Lord declares one after the next. You can't have one of these virtues without having all the other virtues. You can't be poor in spirit, but not meek. You can't be a mourner, but not meek, and so on. They all go hand in hand. When the Spirit causes us to be born again, He works each of these virtues into our hearts. And so the posture of Meekness is also a posture of, of humility. So that when the believer looks around, and when he sees the wickedness of the world, when he's agitated by the wickedness of the world, his first recourse is to look up and to look ahead. When the believer finds himself frustrated and agitated by the wickedness of the world, the believer looks up to God and he looks ahead to the day when God will come and when he will vindicate the righteous. When God will execute vengeance and righteousness and holiness, things which we are not able to do, 
And therein lies the believer's true strength. The posture of meekness is not weakness. Meekness, as one pastor, is not weakness of character or weakness of resolution or conviction of person. Christ isn't saying here, blessed are those who simply cave into the pressures of the world, who, who, execute, who exude no resolve to stamp for what is right. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, blessed are those who simply give up or go along to get along. That's not what he's getting at when he says, blessed are the meek. Meekness isn't weakness. But in recognition of the fact that our strength and that our help is in the name of the Lord, the posture of meekness is the posture of humble waiting. It's the posture of humble waiting that says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Meekness leaves justice to God's hands. And in so doing, it often has the effect that it, that it wins our neighbors over. Think of the effect that, that David's meekness had on King Saul. When, when King Saul was in the cave relieving himself and David cut off a piece of his cloak and Saul realized that David could have killed him. What did Saul say to David? You are more righteous than I. Oftentimes meekness, as we leave justice to the Lord's hand, can even win our, our neighbors over in the process. Our Lord's meekness is never to be associated with weakness. Genuine meekness is not the absence of righteous zeal. It's not the, the lack of a willingness to confront sin. But the same Meek Jesus is a Jesus who overturned the tables in the temple. In fact, if you turn over to Matthew 11, you'll notice the striking context in which Jesus bids those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. In light of that declaration, I am gentle and lowly of heart, that declaration comes on the heels of his saying, woe to these unrepentant cities of, of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been, done in, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the, the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than, than for you. Meekness is not to be associated with weakness or the absence of zeal. But meekness is rather to be associated with the bearing of injuries in this life and the trust and confidence that God will vindicate in the life to come. Isn't that one of the things that, that we learn from the life of Christ? He committed his way unto the Lord, patiently enduring the mockery of the world as he followed the will of the Lord all the way to the cross. As 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to, to his father who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so Peter goes on to say, speak similar to us. Have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
if you desire life, if you want to see good days, bless those who revile you. Do so in gentleness and respect, says Peter. Do so with meekness and respect. This congregation is the posture of meekness. Meekness is a humble trust and waiting upon the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 5 can more literally be translated as roll your ways or, or roll all your circumstances onto the Lord. Trust and trust all your anger, all your perplexity, all your distress from living in this world onto him. Be silent, be still before him and wait patiently for him. In summary, the posture that David is describing for us here is really the the posture of of non-idolatry. What David is saying here is that those who are meek are those who refrain from acting like, like their God. as if their own efforts can right every wrong and correct every injustice. But as we'll sing in a few moments, those who are meek live by the words, be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide in every change. He faithful will remain. The posture of meekness is the posture of Waiting, it's the posture of humility. The posture of bearing injuries and doing so without resentment. It's a posture that's shaped by the perspective set forth in verses 9 and following of Psalm 37. Notice the word for at the start of verse 9. With that little word, David is is setting forth the, the reason or the rationale that lies behind this posture of meekness, which Jesus says is blessed by God. Why can the believer be still before the Lord? Why can the believer leave to his God to order and provide? Even when he finds himself surrounded by by conflict and by all the apparent prosperity of the wicked? The believer can do that because God assures us that the day of vindication is coming. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath, says the psalmist, for the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, says David, the wicked will be no more. Although you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land, and they shall delight themselves in abundant peace. What David is saying in these verses is that things are not all as they often appear to be. Although the wicked seem to have so much going for them, and while the righteous seem to have so much going against them in this world, David says the wicked, they're they're on their way out. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, verse 2. Sometimes the present prosperity of the wicked makes us wonder whether there's any real moral order in the world at all. But David is assuring us here that there is a day of reckoning is coming. And so we need to keep things in perspective. The wicked are eventually going to be cut off. The meek are going to inherit the land. We need to keep things in perspective. This is the way that God shames the world, isn't it? Through the folly of the cross 
as we share in the sufferings of Christ. In this way, God shames the Lord. He proves the, the wisdom of the world to be foolishness. We need to recognize that already now the Lord holds the wicked in derision. As Psalm 2 says, so verse 13 says, the Lord laughs at the wicked. He sees that his day is coming. God hasn't turned a blind eye to the wickedness of the world. He hasn't turned a blind eye to the persecutions of the church. To quote Delroth Davis, the ruin of the wicked is ironically just, for in the end, it is self-inflicted. Verse 14 says, The wicked draw their swords and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. But then what does verse 15 say? Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. The day of reversal is coming. We need to keep things in perspective. As the psalmist says in verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has and the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. David is calling us to keep things in perspective. To quote John Calvin, the poor, those who walk in sincerity, those who patiently persevere are nevertheless secure. However many cruelties and trials they suffer, they are sure to inherit the earth, as Psalm 37 says. Although they may not own one foot of ground, they are persuaded, and they can say with quiet assurance, God will direct my steps wherever I am. As verse 23 to 24 tell us, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. When a person has this assurance, writes Calvin, when he knows that God upholds and will continue to uphold him, he is infinitely richer than all those who clutch and claw their way through life. For it is better to have God as your father than to have all the abundance of the wicked. What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world, says Jesus, if only to, to forfeit his own soul? And so although believers may be strangers and wanderers in this world, says Calvin, this perspective gives them great hope. David, you see, is setting before us the long view. He's setting before us the the long view, and he's calling us to live in light of that long view. He's calling us to live in the present in light of what God says is sure to come in the future. To let that be our confidence and our hope when we are wronged, we've endured the offenses of living in a wicked world. To entrust ourselves to him who judges justly as Christ did. Even as he was going to the cross, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. David is setting before us the, the long view. And he's calling us to, to live in light of that view. So as I say, let what you know about the future destiny of the wicked control your, your passions and your disposition towards the difficulties and pressures and conflicts in the present. Let your perspective be shaped by, 
Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The wicked will be cut off. But Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth. The wicked will be cut off, that's that's covenant language. Throughout the Old Testament, you read about God making a covenant with Abraham. That actual language is God cutting a covenant. Remember how God, uh, the, the covenant carcasses were cut in two and God passed through those carcasses. That's how covenants were made. So that the parties would pass through and they'd say, if I break this covenant, let me be cut off. Let me be cut to pieces. And God says the wicked are going to be cut off not the righteous, those who are in Christ, because Christ was cut off for them. The righteous, says Jesus, the meek, they'll not be cut off, but they'll inherit the earth. It's a notion, says Calvin, which the human mind cannot entertain. For it is often said that all those who are gracious, sincere, and long-suffering, it is often said that they are but poor fools, and that they would do far better to retaliate than to allow their good nature to be abused. But what Jesus declares is true, says Calvin. The best and most preferable course is to maintain our sincerity and to practice patient endurance when we are maligned and not to render evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good, as Paul says in Romans 12, 21. For the Lord loves justice, verse 28 of Psalm 37. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Wait for the Lord, verse 34, and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. The day of vindication is coming. Read of that in Article 37 of the Belgian Confession, that day when we receive those unfading crowns of glory, we're vindicated before the whole world as the wicked are carried off and cut off from the presence of God's favor. For the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, verse 39. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. Even before the wicked are finally dealt with, even before we receive the fullness of our inheritance, David And Christ alike say that we are blessed already now. Even before the wicked are finally taken out, writes one pastor, and while God's people are are living in this topsy-turvy world where the wicked seem to thrive and succeed, and even in the midst of such turmoil and troubles, God's people are hardly bereft of all comforts. For God provides through thick and thin. Already now that the meek know the comfort and the benefits of God's providence that, that as Lord's A 10 says, they can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. And for the future, they can have a good and strong confidence that nothing in all this world shall separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In verses 25 and 26, we see that the Lord looks after the daily needs of his people as well. As David looks back on his life, as he remembers the years of his childhood and the years of his being on the run from King Saul 
And every year thereafter, what can he say? I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Were God's children begging for bread? He is ever lending generously and his children have become a blessing. Already now we know the comfort of God's preservation. Verses 27 to 29. He does not forsake his saints, but they are preserved forever. And not only that, but there is that future hope that we shall also inherit the whole earth. Notice how Jesus in this beatitude has, has quoted, selected verse from this psalm almost verbatim, making only one New Testament amendment, changing out the word land for the word earth. When the Old Testament Israel and the Old Testament church read this psalm, they of course primarily had the, the promised land of Canaan in view. The righteous shall inherit the land of Canaan. But Jesus expands the inheritance, doesn't he? Not just the land of Canaan, but the whole earth. That's what the meek shall one day possess on that day of vindication. The Lord's promise, you see, points us forward to that better country described in Hebrews chapter 11, that heavenly country, the new heaven and the new earth. That's what awaits the meek. That's what awaits the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Wait upon the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the earth. That's the promise that God sets before you this morning. This exaltation, this glorious inheritance belongs to all those who are in Christ Jesus. As you know, an inheritance is not something that can be earned, but an inheritance is something that's, that's freely given, and that's the way it is for us this morning. This inheritance is ours not because we earned it or because we, we worked for it or because we happened to be born into it but only because God has been gracious to bestow it. When man gave him this in the garden, he, he forfeited that inheritance, didn't he? he? He lost his title to the earth, choosing instead the domain of darkness and the kingdom of Satan. What is our Lord declaring to us here? Christ is is declaring the gospel that by faith in him, that inheritance has been regained. That's what he accomplished at the cross as he was cut off from the land of the living as Isaiah 53 describes. He was regaining our inheritance. God does not forsake his saints. He preserves them. Why? Because he forsook the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he did not preserve him from death. Christ has regained that inheritance for us. And that's why the inheritance is ours, because God has been gracious to give us to Christ and to give Christ to us. God has been gracious to give us that inheritance by way of adoption, the very thing that we saw signified and sealed this morning as the waters of baptism were poured upon Claire's head. That as the form says, when we are baptized into the name of the Father, what does the Father do? The Father testifies and seals to us 
that he makes or he cuts an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as his children and heirs. Promising to provide us everything good and to protect us from all evil or turn it to our profit. When the Holy Spirit makes his home in our hearts, what does he do? He imparts all that is Christ and he gives it to us. As Paul says in Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so Paul says, what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or to state the question another way, how will he not also graciously give us the whole earth? He who did not suffer to give his own son, how will he not also graciously give us the whole earth? The gospel answer, of course, is that he will. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came as the Savior who declared himself to be gentle and lowly. That he was a Savior who bore injuries against him and who did so patiently and without resentment. We're comforted by that, Lord, because we know that we ourselves have injured him. It was our sin that held him there at the cross until it was accomplished. We have grieved him. We have offended his majesty. We have done injury to his person, breaking his heart every time we've given him to sin. And yet, and yet he does not resent us. Father, we pray that we would learn from him. That even as his meekness has melted our own hearts, we pray that our meekness would melt the hearts of our enemies as well. So that when they see our meekness, they would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ who was gentle and lowly. Father, we pray that as we live in this world, we would not associate meekness with weakness, but that we would indeed be willing yet to stand for what is right. May we recognize that meekness is not the absence of zeal for the faith. But may we with the Apostle Paul say that we entreat the world by the meekness and gentleness of Christ to take every thought captive to Christ. May we not return evil for evil, but when we are reviled, may we bless as Jesus has taught us to do. Father, help us to keep all things in perspective. That as we endure the injuries of the world, may we be cognizant of the fact that you laugh from heaven, that you see the evil deeds of the wicked and that you have said vengeance is yours and you will repay. May that be our confidence, O Lord, even as we look forward to the provision of the whole earth. We long for that day, O God. And we shall see the Son of Man in all his glory and we shall inherit that new country, the heaven and earth, together as one. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.